all know me, know how I earn a living. This shark, swallow you whole. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. Find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten thousand dollars for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You yelled shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the wreck of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. A what? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. Thank you for returning once again to the Jaws Obsession, where we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Thank you, everyone, for returning. Episode 53, everyone knows this line right here. A what? A what? That's right. A listener email opened up a door to just a few questions that we have. Were the three bumbling fishermen who caught the tiger shark in Jaws a device used by director Steven Spielberg and editor Verna Fields to give a deeper context into Matt Hooper's character? What can they tell us? What can these three fishermen tell us about the narrative in Jaws and is the a what line more significant than, and not just some throwaway line. These, all these questions we're going to unpack and we're going to answer later on in this episode, because as always, our mission here is to break down Jaws by examining the finest of details. We're leaving no stone unturned here in our quest to prove that this is the greatest movie of all time. So uh, when things like this come up, I want to just jump right in and uh, see what I can find in these in this scene. So I had another episode planned, a listener email, which we will get to later on, change the course. So anytime you write into this show, I love all of your emails and I read everyone's email and I try to get back to everyone, but we are all in this together. We are, we are all in the Jaws obsession at the same time. This is a, a evolving show and we never know where it's going to go one episode to the next. I don't have a docket of episodes planned out here. I, I have ideas, but dictating on where the uh, prevailing winds take us, that's where the Jaws Obsession will go. So this episode 53 is a direct example of that. I've been asked before, could we ever do this with another movie? I was thinking over the um, over the Christmas season, um, I believe I, I could do this with one other movie because of there's a passion that I have with one other movie other than Jaws. 
and uh, could I could this be done um, uh, a show to show analytical show of finding deeper context and narrative issues in a movie and having fun doing it? Yes, I do. I think that if I had more time, if there was another, if there was a twin version of myself, I would have him going over there and he would be doing It's a Wonderful Life, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it, it does take a backseat to Jaws, but I watch it every year. And this year I watched it with this scope of what I've been doing with the Jaws Obsession. So it was, the, it was the, after a year of doing Jaws Obsession shows, I watched It's a Wonderful Life. And there is so much more going on in that movie we do know there's multiple timelines, multiple narratives going on, but there are other side characters that have to be uh, looked into, uh, researched. There's throwaway lines that are not really throwaway lines. Uh, if I could, I would do it. It would be called It's a Wonderful Obsession. That's the show that I would be doing out there because there's a lot more going on in that movie. And I believe if you looked into uh, Frank Capra and just what was going on with the writing and, of course, with the narrative of uh, Jimmy Stewart actually coming back from World War II and the experiencing the loss of some of his friends because Jimmy Stewart was a bomber pilot in World War II, that gave him a darker tone to operate on that when the movie takes shifts to that darker tone, he dives right into that better than he ever could. And that I think that was the turning point in his career that led to a darker Jimmy Stewart where he started working with Alfred Hitchcock. You could see there was a uh, there was a line in his career where he he was never doing uh, darker material like that before World War II. And I think that's fascinating. That's I know there's books written on it, but see, that's uh, we're not going to do that. This is just going to start a whole other episode. And I can't I, I there's too much going on here. So let's not <laughs> I'm not going to get into that fully but yes it's a wonderful obsession maybe it will happen when i uh when i retire if everyone's around still with me and if i'm still around uh, maybe we can actually get this done after uh maybe after i find more time so i'd like to start out with uh, episodes going from now into the future we'll we'll start doing some jaws news if anything comes up that i feel that is pertinent to the show or the Jaws universe, then I will uh, fire into Jaws news right off, right out of the gate here. Before we get to the three fishermen in Jaws, we have some news. Then we're going to have a Book of Quint news, and we have some emails to go to. We have some Book of Quint reviews, and then we're going to get into exactly what the a what line is all about. So this jumped out at me right away when I saw this come over the newswire. There's an article here from IndieWire.com, which I will be posting in our show notes. Everybody, our show notes is still over at the Telegram channel at Telegram at JawsOB. You can find a link for our show notes in the description of this broadcast on the platform that you are listening on. But over at IndieWire.com, there was an article that come up, that came up, and it, this splashed across all news sites, all news agencies across the world. John Williams walks back retirement plans. Steven Spielberg is not a man you can say no to. This uh, was an article by Christian uh, Zilko. In a rare public appearance together, Spielberg and Williams reflected on 50 years of collaborations while looking forward to what's next. So John Williams, as we all know, composed the score for Jaws and has worked on many Spielberg films. Uh, Steven Spielberg and John Williams made a rare public appearance together on Thursday night in L.A. to reflect on the half 
century of collaborating as director and composer. The outpouring of love from the ecstatic crowd was matched only by the bromance on display from Williams and Spielberg themselves as they each seized every possible opportunity to heap praise on their friend. So I'm going to skip down. You can read the rest of this article at our on our show notes, but I'm going to skip down to, as the evening drew to a close, the conversation inevitably turned to Williams' pending retirement from film scoring. The composer broke every movie fan's heart last year when he announced his plans to step back from the film industry after he finished work on the upcoming Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. But on stage Thursday night, Williams revealed that he now plans to keep working with Spielberg for as long as time allows. Quote, Stephen is a lot of things, Williams said. He's a director. He's a producer. He's a studio head. He's a writer. He's a philanthropist. He's an educator. One thing he isn't is a man you can say no to. When Spielberg mentioned that his father kept working until he was 102 years old, Williams turned to the audience and feigned exasperation. This is what he expects from me. The only person who might have been happier about Williams' unretirement than the rapturous audience in the room was Spielberg himself. Quote, We always said we'd retire at the same time, so if he's not, I guess I'm not either, Spielberg said with a laugh. So now I've got to find out what the hell I'm doing next. That's the end of the article. So Spielberg, what what I'm I have to find out what I'm doing next. Uh, John Williams is now not going to retire. It's almost as if things were meant to be. Isn't this interesting that this comes up now? And that's why I am imploring. This is a project of destiny, the book of Quint and the prequel to Jaws for the 50th anniversary. I still have Mr. Spielberg's copy right here. He, there is a book of Quint ready to go out to him if his camp reaches out. I have no idea where to send it. Believe me, I would have already sent it if I knew I could, if it was going to find its way to uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg. We only have so many of these books, and we have to make sure they go where they're, they get to where they're supposed to go. I would hope that Mr. Spielberg's camp has their ear to the ground and listening to the the reverberating vibrations that are going on in the Jaws obsession and the Jaws universe, that the Book of Quint is a project that is very notable. The fans are speaking out, as as we can see on Instagram, over at Instagram, at Book of Quint. I can see it in the emails. I can see it in the reviews of early readers. This is a project of destiny, and I don't see these things as coincidences. I don't see these things as happenstance. John Williams coming out of retirement and Spielberg and him reaffirming that they are going to be working together. Wouldn't it be nice to see them revisit the movie that changed both of their careers forever? So what what a time to be alive if you're a Jaws fan. What a time that this is all shaping up. Remember, that we are on we are on the Peter Benchley timeline. He was done January of 1973. We now he was done with the manuscript for Jaws. It would not be it would go to the publisher. It would not be published for another year. And here we are with a finished novel of the Book of Quint, the prequel to Jaws, in January of 2023. Fifty years later, we're actively seeking literary representation, so the book can get into worldwide publication. But at the same time, this is the this is the year where the process has to start. If there's going to be uh, any talk of a film version for 2025, it has to be this year that we have to get a jump on these things. So 
That's why I am pressing. I'm working hard to find a literary agent that would like to represent the Book of Quint. Let's shift gears over to the Book of Quint news. And then there were 40. There's only 40 books left over at the Cracked Bean Coffee Roastery in Syracuse, New York, where Michelle is shipping them out for people that would like to read the Book of Quint. These are just the original 300 that were made. There was only 300 of these books that were printed on the limited edition printing from our Indiegogo campaign over the summer. All the Indiegogo backers now have their books, and now people that have are recently hearing about this, uh, they have an opportunity to get the Book of Quint through Crack Bean Coffee Roastery on their merchandise page. That's the official coffee of the Jaws Session. I'm drinking it right now, trying to stay awake while recording this. Michelle's coffee is fantastic. If you can, if you can support her as well as if you get the Book of Quint, get some coffee because... It's a 400-page novel. It's 139,000 words. You'll want to have a few cups of coffee to get through the book. Follow the links below. There's a link for the Crack Bean Coffee Roastery. Get one of these last 40 books. And we don't know. We sold 20 over the weekend. So there's only 40 left that might not last another week, two weeks. Who knows? Exciting times. And if you have any questions, you can always email me here at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. You can also message me over at, at Book of Quint over at Instagram. Also, I have to apologize about the schedule for the Jaws Obsession has been a little erratic lately. My priority has shifted writing query letters to the literary agencies in the publishing world. And uh, what I'm trying to do is, is lobby the book to gain representation of a literary agent that can take it to one of the major publishing houses. Uh, we're starting right at the top, and we're just working our way through the, the the lists over at Publishers Marketplace. I'm learning as I'm going. There's there's things I'm perfecting my uh, query letter process. This is something that I have to, you have to just get in and do it. And there's going to be pain at the start. If anyone knows, uh, I once did a, I, I once directed a documentary, Plan 9 from Syracuse, where it detailed where I ran across the United States of America, or the continent of North America. That was back in 2006. The run across America itself was was an event where you can't plan, you, you cannot plan for every detail because at that point, if you try to, you'll have paralysis by analysis. You will just be standing still thinking of, well, what if this happens? Don't. What if this happens? I should look at this because what if this happens? And then next thing you know, you never get started. So you, at that point, I had to think that, that I have the funding. Did I have um, the two pairs of running shoes? Was I in uh, moderate shape? Yes. Okay, just go. Just start running. And what happened was is that everyone always asked, what was the hardest state you ever ran through? I ran from, I ran from Syracuse, New York to Hollywood, California. And the hardest state that I ever ran through was New York. Why was that? Because when you first start, everything breaks on your body. Your legs swell up. The tendons swell up behind your kneecaps. I could not bend my knees. I, my running devolved into a pain, painful hobble. Uh, so I started out running 30 miles a day, and then that fell down to uh, 15, and then that fell down to 12 the third day. So I'm fighting to get out of New York State because of all the different terrain problems. But the thing is, is that you have to, your body breaks, but you keep going. And then as I, as I reached into Indiana, so you, you moved into Pennsylvania and then into Ohio. By the time I reached Indiana, my body just became this running machine. And it was built as such where I was 
peeling off 30 to 40 miles a day. That's how I take to every project I always have. And the Book of Quint was no exception. Same with Jaws Obsession. So now we have go into the literary process where I am going into a world where I have really, I am outgunned, I am outmatched. Um, I know I have a, we have a solid novel and I know I have a fan following for that novel. And so there is a demand for that. So now it's jump right in with the query letter process and start focusing my creative energy into that. And, and then of course there's going to be roadblocks. You're going to be, you're going to run into some people that uh, might have other plans or disagreements. And that is all part of the negotiation process. So what I can tell you is that I planned on doing this episode earlier, but I had a communication, I had to a back and forth that I had to focus on that. And that takes me out of the broadcasting role. So um, there's going to be pain at the start. I'm going to make mistakes, but that's the whole thing is, the whole thing is, is that Quint, Robert Shaw, and the survivors of the USS Indianapolis are worth it. I understand that there's certain um, prerequisites and people have different modeling for uh, what type of book will sell in what market. But there is a certain point where you have to say the story is worth the fight. The characters are worth the fight. To celebrate Robert Shaw's performance of Quint is worth the fight. And that's where it's going on. If I have to um, get turned down by a number of people, we're going to keep doing that until someone says yes. This Until someone comes on board and agrees and says, yes, this is worth a push. And if it has to, we can always do it ourselves. I know we can do it. I've had offers for independent financing. So we can do, we could publish this ourselves, but it's the, the large publishing houses that have the distribution network already set up so that every Jaws fan would have access to this book around the world, not just in the United States, but also in other countries, Australia, United Kingdom, everywhere that uh, books are sold, that these larger publishing houses have a way of uh, distributing the book which we do not have that at this level. So that's what the focus is here, is finding someone who believes in the book just as much as the early readers and just as much as I do. So that's where I'm at right now. And if aside from my career working on power lines, I only have so much time that I have to, that I can sink into these areas. So right now, the, the brunt of that time has to shift over to the uh, literary agent process. And so that's, uh, unfortunately, the Jaws Obsession schedule is going to take a hit, which as you have seen, the, the episode, the, the gaps between episodes have, has spread out. But that's okay. That's okay because the episodes are getting longer. If you noticed our first, first episodes, I was focused on getting in and getting out, getting in the information, not wasting your time and coming out. But now we have so much more to report. We have so much more going on. We have emails coming in. We have book reviews. We have the Book of Quint, which adds a whole other section of uh, dialogue into the Jaws universe that we can get to, as well as looking into the movie Jaws and the certain details that we still have yet to go over. Very exciting times. How many uh, movie franchises, how many fan bases have kinetic energy like this right now? We are very fortunate. We are very fortunate to be in this position. And it's exciting. We're having a great time. That's where I would like to move over to these emails, you, some of the book reviews that are coming in by people all over the world. It's great to see. So uh, once again, YouTube or 
anywhere, Apple, Spotify, if you could subscribe to this episode, if you could share this episode, if you could rate this episode or this series with five stars, would be very grateful because that pushes us out to new listeners. And there are many new Jaws fans coming in that are just realizing that what we are doing here today, even though we that's what we have to focus on, is that this is a, this is a from the ground up campaign that we've built here. If we want to see this get to the silver screen, it's possible, but we all have to do it together. We all have to create the noise and just make people aware of what we're doing over here. So if you have done that, I'm very grateful for it. Thank you very much for your help. And if you know anyone that you haven't yet told about the Jaws Obsession, point them right over here and we'll we'll pick up the ball and run with it from there. That's another thing. That's uh, That's one more thing is that that's my biggest fear in all of this. It's not about the book. My biggest fear is that we're going to run out of books <laughs> and that people will not be able to read the book, that I get emails all the time. Uh, and today I just got two in just now about where someone can buy the book. So I'm pointing them, everyone over to the Crack Bean Coffee Roastery to their website because there's only 40 books left, but eventually we're going to run out of books. And then I'm going to have to tell people we don't have any books. And once it's very sad, it's a, that's, that's the problem. That's that little gap. That's going to be that uncomfortable area where I hope that I can give people the details, say, we don't have any books now, but this publishing house has picked the book up and they're going to come out with it at this date. So that's what I'm fighting for is I don't want to reach that area where we don't have a date. I won't have a date to tell people once these books are all gone and out. So we're going to fix that. And that's, that's the problem. That, so that's, that's my quest right now is to get that date, to get dates so people can uh, look forward. Even if they don't have a copy of the Book of Quint, they can look forward to when they will be able to read it. I have three reviews here from three early readers. The first one I have is from Greg LaDuca in Rochester, New York. So Greg writes in, in the words of my favorite pretty and pink character, Iona, applause, applause, applause. As I read the book of Quint, I could see it in my mind and what it would look like on the big screen. I felt like I was in the water with Quint. I can see chapters 27 to 29 as a montage with energetic music playing as Quint and Herschel worked. And the ending after the credits are shown, a chilling nod to what is to come later. The book answered so many questions for me as it paid tribute to the movie Jaws. I enjoyed the book in three parts. Getting to know Herschel personally in part two was a treat. Like many others, the scene in the Orca with Quint, Hooper, and Brody is one of my favorite scenes of all time. The book of Quint pays tribute to this scene and the USS Indianapolis as it deserves. I could go on and on. I look forward to watching Jaws again in the near future continuing to listen to the Jaws Obsession and doing more reading on the USS Indianapolis and reading the Book of Quint again. Congratulations, Ryan. We are rooting for you and look forward to seeing Quint on the big screen in 2025. One question. Did Jerry Seinfeld get a copy of the book too? Thank you. From Greg, Bridget King's husband in Rochester, New York. Thank you, Greg, for writing in. Thank you for reading the book, Quint, and, and you're going to read it again. Isn't that, that's wonderful. To answer your question, he asked about Jerry Seinfeld getting a copy of the book too. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, as we know, is, uh, is the owner of the original Orca letters that were used, that were screen used Orca, O-R-C-A, lettering that was used in Jaws on the Orca. So we know Jerry Seinfeld is a big Jaws fan. And Greg, because you asked that, I will put a book to the side for Jerry Seinfeld as well. So now we have uh, Spielberg's book here, 
We have Jerry Seinfeld's book here. We just need an address to send it and get it to these gentlemen. But uh, yes, we'll, we will keep one on the side. So Mr. Seinfeld, if you're listening, you can write me at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. We'll get you a book because he's a Jaws fan and we want all Jaws fans to have access to the Book of Quint. Thank you very much. I like how Greg zeroed in on the the orca scene with Quint Hooper and Brody is one of my favorite scenes of all time. That's in the in, in the orca, which would be the show me the way to go home uh, scene, the USS Indianapolis speech by Robert Shaw. And yes, the Book of Quint does pay tribute to that in in uh, the in a way that I don't think anyone is going to expect. That table in the Orca is a special table. There's a lot that's happened at that table. And let's just put it this way. There's a reason why when Quint says, oh, he taps his forearm and he says, Mr. Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. And after he says that, he looks down and you watch his eyes, he actually goes to the grain pattern on the table. He actually looks at the table in that scene. There's a reason why he does that, and that's explained in the book of Quint. Just that table means a lot, because if you look at it in the context of Jaws, we could probably do a whole episode on just the table. Maybe after after the book comes out and everyone reads the book, because I don't want any spoilers in there, but the, I mean, just think about that table. That's the table he's holding on to when his arm gives out, and he physically can't hold on to that, that table anymore, and that's when he drops to his death. So there's a lot going on with that table in the Orca. And uh, right now it's underwater currently after Jaws 2. And uh, are we ever going to see that table again? We might. We just might. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for writing in. Thank you for reading the book of Quint. And thank you for that great review. Let's move on to Kevin. So Kevin writes in, okay, hi, Ryan. Happy New Year. I just finished the book of Quint, and I wanted to write you to let you know that you truly honored the Jaws legacy with this prequel. I purchased it off the Crack Bean Roastery site and waited like a kid for Christmas until it arrived in the mail. I was glued to the book right from the prologue. You did an amazing job with all your USS Indianapolis research that paid homage to all those brave men who were on that ship. The fictional story of Quint woven into the historic tragedy came to life with even more detail than it did from the original Jaws movie scene on the Orca. All the things you have spoken about on the Jaws Obsession this last year came to life and were enriched by reading this prequel book. You were absolutely right when you said this would happen if you read the book. The telling of the story of Quint's life once he came to Amity Island from the perspective of Herschel Salvatore was so cool. His short cameo in the original movie made his storytelling unexpected and sincere. All throughout my reading, I would picture in my mind how would this chapter come to life on the screen. I really feel now that this would be very interesting and entertaining to see as a movie. I saw Jaws back in the summer of 1975, and I feel so attached to the characters, especially Quint. The Book of Quint just made that even more special. I wish you nothing but great success with the book and getting a publisher, and with the Jaws Obsession podcast. The future legacy of Jaws is in great hands with this prequel. Thank you again, and please tell your family thanks from your fans for letting you write this. You made all Jaws fans very happy. God bless, Kevin Alvine. And Kevin sent in a picture of him holding his Quint bobblehead and the Book of Quint with his Quint's Shark Fishing Amity Island Jaws t-shirt, we're going to get that up on Instagram. Thank you very much, Kevin, for writing in. What a great review. What a great review. He First of all, he wasn't able to make the campaign. 
He got the book through the Crack Bean Coffee Roastery. So he's one of the latest of the readers out there. People are actively reading and enjoying the movie in their mind. And that's what I keep saying. You are going to watch the movie in your mind. And he and, and Kevin actually zeroed in on that. He says, you were absolutely right when you said this would happen if you read the book, just because there's a certain style in the way it is written. I look forward to doing more episodes on the writing of the book of Clint and even analyzing chapters. We could just, we could go into that. There's so much to talk about. What people are seeing, I'm seeing a common denominator in many of these book reviews. It is all throughout my reading, I would picture in my mind, how would this chapter come to life on the screen? So people are saying that they see the movie in their mind. And I think that's fantastic. I believe that just because you are listening to my voice now, you are a fan of the Jaws obsession. If you are a listener to the Jaws obsession, you have basically put your mind through an exercise of visualizing listening to Jaws, because we've played audio clips of Jaws on this show, and then you're, you're, you're looking, you're watching Jaws in your mind. So you're actually working out. It's almost, it's as if you're going to the gym and your work, your mind is working out on how to visualize the movie Jaws. So now when you go into reading the book of Quint, you now watch the book of Quint. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's something that I never expected when I started this podcast. So that's what's amazing. That's what's going on here is I'm seeing a lot of this, a lot of these common, a lot of the reviews I have coming in have these same traits. And one other trait that Kevin zeroes in on, he says he saw Jaws back in 1975 in the summer of 75, and he feels so attached to the characters, especially Quint. The book of Quint just made that even more special. And there it is right there. That was what I was most focused on when uh, back in the summer of 2020, that I knew that this was going to be a, a an extreme mountain to climb was to win the trust of the fans because I know how special this movie is in the hearts and minds of millions of people out there. So that's why I went through pacing the extra steps that brought on the technical advisor, John Tedder, my technical advisor on the book. So we would have long discussions on certain aspects. So that's why I wanted to make sure that I everyone saw that this was not a money-making scheme. This was not a flash-in-the-pan idea. This book took over two years to research and write. And when I see comments like what Kevin said about the future legacy of Jaws is in great hands with this prequel, and I know how extreme he is of a Jaws fan, that that makes my day so much right there. And it tells me, the fans, seeing that in the book, I believe that John Williams and Steven Spielberg will see that as well if they read the book. We're at exciting times here, folks. Exciting times. Thank you very much, Kevin, for writing in. What a great review. Thank you very much. Uh, one more review. Let's go to Dale. Now, let me preface here because Dale, uh, at the end of his his review, he gives his credentials. Dale is a Welsh linesman from Wales who lives in England. Now, Dale also works on high-voltage power lines. He has the same career I do, so we're both linemen. Now, in the United States, we call ourselves linemen. In over in the UK, and I, I believe Australia, they, they call themselves linesmen. So there's an S in there, linesman. Over here, we're linemen. So it's the same thing, is that he's a Welsh linesman from Wales who lives in England. So I was really excited when he was a backer to the campaign and he received his book. I was really excited to hear what he thought of the book because he's a multi-generational linesman. He has been working on power lines. His father worked on power lines. I believe his 
grandfather worked on power lines and then his son works on power lines. So, so you have a generational line worker family over here uh, with Dale. And my father worked on power lines as well. So I'm a second generation lineman. We have Dale writing in. He says, good morning, Ryan. Hope you are well. I've just this minute finished the book of Quint. Sat here in bed, drinking coffee, relaxing, reading your masterpiece of a novel. And I sincerely mean that this book is a masterpiece. The time, effort, and knowledge you've put in this book is truly mind-blowing, especially knowing the job you do and the family time required with young children. This is my review of the book of Quint. I thoroughly enjoyed the whole book from start to finish. I've smiled and laughed, and it's also brought a tear to my eye. And I've given the book a 10 out of 10 score. With listening to your podcast and listening to episode 40, The Screenwriter's Bible and the Beats. From the start of the book, it's a roller coaster of emotions. I love the part where Quint stopped by the Lions team constructing the overhead line to supply Amity Point. And I have this image in my head as a silhouette landscape of Quint's truck and a linesman up every pole. Just brilliant. As a kid, I used to listen to the story my dad told me of the work he had completed that day. I would draw a linesman working, so from a young age, the path was forged to line working on power lines. The part with Quint fighting the Great White had the hair on my neck stand on end, and I was so willing him to bring the huge shark home. Uh, yesterday, I was out with a friend, Paul Hill, taking photos of a place called Park Gate, which is on the Wirral Peninsula. We walked along the estuary, and we came across a boat graveyard and I instantly thought back to Quint and how Quint first found the warlock at the boat graveyard. The back of the book in the appendix, the images of the orca are fantastic. And the few bits that us line workers would recognize, the soft polars, slack blocks, and the grip we call a lazy billy service pulley, and come along clamp. Just wonderful. Kind regards, Dale. Thanks, Dale. Thank you so much. He sent pictures of the uh, boat graveyard that there is, um, what the book of Quint establishes is that there is a graveyard cove of derelict boats that is on the north shore of Amity Island. I've been fascinated with this, and I've heard stories of various places where people will take, boats are hard to, uh, if, you're, if, if a boat is going to be abandoned, it's, people will just leave it there. So what happens is, is that there, there are places you can go, for example, up in Nova Scotia, where you can go to sections of beach and all it is is old vessels, old boats just sitting high and dry, sitting on land, where people just dragged them up there and just left them. So fishermen that had a business that failed or, they, uh, or the boat is just too, much, too expensive to make repairs or maybe the crew perished somehow and the boat has, doesn't have a real owner. It's just left there for time to do what it, what it will with these vessels. And though that's fascinating to me that there are boat graveyards of forgotten memories. And uh, I wrote about that in the book of Quint. And Dale found one, and he included pictures here of uh, a boat graveyard uh, that is close to where he lives in England on the Wirral Peninsula. I'll put up a couple of these on our Instagram over at Book of Quint on our Instagram. Might even, might even include a passage about the Graveyard Cove. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you very much for that. One of the aspects of the Book of Quint is that there is no electricity. Amity Island is the last island to get electricity in the New England area. That electricity made it to Martha's Vineyard and made it to Nantucket first. 
And then the power line is established through Cable Junction over to Amity Island. Amity Island does not actually get power until 1951. And then Amity Point, which is Quint's fishing village, Amity Point is where the Coast Guard is and it's where Quint lives down at the west end of the island. That doesn't get power lines until 1953. So there's a part of the book that shows that the these power lines are being constructed, the overhead lines. It all takes time, especially back then. There weren't any bucket trucks, so these guys all had to climb poles and manually do it. They had to be on each pole. They had to, they had to pull wire in. And those are things that we still do to this day. If there is a line that goes through the woods, you have to climb up those poles and you have to string wire. So that's the uh, that's just what, what we still do. We still use techniques that they used back in the 50s to build power lines. And uh, Dale uh, zeroed in on that because he is a Welsh linesman from Wales who lives in England. How cool is that? How cool is that? That here we have a book that is resonating with people all around the world, all sorts of careers. We have fishermen, we have boaters, we have linemen, other people that are just avid book fans. Everyone is enjoying the book of Quint. We are onto something here, and this is very, very excited. Very, very exciting. Very exciting to see. So thank you so much. Those were the great reviews that we're going to receive. Now let's move on to the second half of this episode, which is going to be all about these guys. I, I, kind of a shock, is it? I don't know. I think it's a McCall. Got a deep throat, crack. Yeah, but, but what kind? What kind of shock? Tiger shark. A what? And there we have it. A what? That's what brings us to our topic of episode 53 today. This was uh, brought about, uh, those three guys, we're going to deal with these three fishermen. And this was brought about by an email that I received from Book of Quint reader Chris. Uh, Chris will email me from time to time, and he always uh, brings up alternate topics And he might just mention something that gets my mind thinking. And one of these was he was listening to episode 52 and I was discussing the scene with Hooper and the fisherman that caught the tiger shark. So so this is Chris's email to me. He said, the way the fisherman asked Hooper about the shark, a what? The tone and sound of his mocking question to Hooper is trying to imply that Hooper sounds or acts gay. Um, This is very politically incorrect statement, but one I believe is true. I was wondering what you think since you didn't mention it. Incidentally, we use this mocking phrase along with other quotes from Jaws all the time. Great show, as always, thanks. And that was Chris from North Carolina. I uh, did some research and there was another comment on a YouTube video by a YouTube user, The Tenth Doctor. And they said, I always had it in my head that his a what quote was done in a faux posh soft voice to mock the more well-spoken and educated Hooper. Now, I will have to disagree here, and that's what um, that's what the Jaws obsession is all about, is how do we interpret these scenes and these lines? Uh, what, what is going on here? We are now going to do a deep dive into these three fishermen, because I believe they had a greater context in the, first of all, they're mentioned in the script. They are mentioned in the script. Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley's screenplay, they are mentioned in there. I do believe that Steven Spielberg had a greater purpose that he was using here. And if you listen to our last um, uh, our last show, episode 52, was Jaws Context. Spielberg was laying down context in a very creative way um, throughout this beginning part of Jaws. 
Now, remember, a lot of these scenes were shot out of order and out of sequence. Many of them were. So and there was a lot of ad-libbing also going on, as we're going to prove here. So what I want to do is I want to go in. We're going to start by analyzing every scene that these guys are in, okay? But first, before we do that, we're going to have to establish that who these characters are. We are going to be operating out of the wonderful book, Jaws Memories from Martha's Vineyard by Matt Taylor. Now, this is a collection. It's a wonderful book that every Jaws fan should have. And this has a lot of details where we go right into family members of these actors and the actors themselves, firsthand accounts of them on scene and what is going on. What I have is the three characters are, we have the man with the hat, with the tan hat, that's, uh, that's played by Henry uh, Carrero, and his name is Felix. Okay, so that character's name is Felix. Then we have Dick Young, who was a screen, uh, a SAG actor from Boston, and he's with the camouflage jacket. He's, uh, he's the one that says the a what line. His character's name is Pratt, P-R-A-T-T. -T. So we have Felix and Pratt. And then we have a third guy that's kind of in the background. He's wearing a dark rain, uh, a, a, a blue-colored rain jacket, a uh, fisherman's jacket. And as far as I know, we're going to call him Harry because I have evidence from the screenplay that that character's name is Harry and the actor is Wally Hooper Jr. I may be mistaken on this, but I am the Internet Movie Database totally has this flopped around. They, con they confuse this Harry with Bad Hat Harry and the actor... Alfred Wilde. Al Wilde is the old, older gentleman that's Bad Hat Harry. This is a different Harry. It's un, he's uncredited, and it's played by actor Wally Hooper Jr., I believe. If anyone has a correction on this, please email me in at jawsob2025 at gmail.com because it would be nice to get this right. But from my research and from the best I can do um, from the research that I have is we have... Felix, Pratt, and Harry are the name of the three fishermen that are the scope of this scene here. What was the purpose behind the a what line? Is it demeaning or is it sincere? I believe it's actually a sincere reaction by a, a man who was caught off guard that has no idea what a shark is. And I'm going to prove that, but we got to, we, what we have to do is we have to start at the beginning when we first meet, when we first meet the three fishermen. And that we're going to have to go back to. We're going to go. We're going to have to go back to when all the fishermen are coming onto the island. So already we have we have Felix, uh, Pratt, and Harry are getting onto the boat across the way. And Chief Brody is yelling to them. Hey, how many guys are you going to put aboard that boat? Whatever said it, right? Hey, how many guys are you going to put aboard that boat? And it looks like the uh, it would be Dick Young is Pratt yells back, whatever's safe, right? So already you have a pushback on authority by these uh, three guys. They are obviously out of towners. It's possible that Pratt is uh, that Dick Young is playing Pratt, who is a New Yorker, because he sort of has a, a New York accent, as we hear later on, but it's still his Boston accent 
comes through. These guys are, uh, I always saw that these guys are nowhere near fishermen. They really don't know what's going on, but they're already pushing back on a police officer. So of course they're going to push back later on on a scientist. We're seeing snappy comebacks already, okay? And when, with these snappy comebacks, there's, there's a certain tone. So let's continue on. So that would have been Felix. Uh, you just walk straight ahead. I have, uh, I have a excerpt from the book, Jaws Memories of Martha's Vineyard, that I want to read here. Henry Carrero, uh, who played Felix, Okay, he's the guy with the yellow hat. Henry Carrero says, I had the good fortune of impressing a friend of Sherry Rhodes and was called to audition for Steven Spielberg. The audition consisted of a couple of questions and instruction to be at the Egertown dock the next morning. Wardrobe had me dressed in bib overalls, but Steven ordered a change of clothes to a yellow shirt, blue windbreaker jacket, and a tan cap. I was introduced to a large man wearing combat military clothing and was informed that he, Dick Young, a Boston Screen Actors Guild, was to be my partner in the film. He was Pratt and I was Felix, shark hunters intent on collecting the reward for the capture of the killer shark. So that is, um, that, those are words right from the actor Henry Carrero. And Already we see that Steven Spielberg told them to change his wardrobe. They had him dressed in bib coveralls as a worker or a fisherman would be wearing. And he said, no, put him in something that is almost suburban-like with the, uh, with the, the, the light blue jacket and, and, and cap. You, you kind of would not wear while underway because it's just, it just doesn't, he looks like a fish out of water. So Spielberg is already utilizing these three fishermen as a device, a device to lay context to the movie. What Spielberg was trying to say with these guys already is, here is normal, everyday mainland Americans or mainland society coming onto the island, and this is how mainland society views shark problems. This is how they're going to view scientific study of sharks. This is also how they're going to view authority when money and bounty is put on a shark. Uh, very important. It's very important here because that that re wardrobe re change request by Steven Spielberg uh, tells us a lot there of how they're used in the movie. Um, Henry Carrero continues on. Dick Young and I were really pumped for the first scene with Richard Dreyfus. There was chaos on the docks as all manner of boats and shark hunters with their assorted equipment. We were we were preparing to sail. We were loading into our boat across the way when Roy Scheider asked Dreyfus to warn us of overloading. When he did, we gave him the business. He asked where he could get a good meal on the island. I couldn't resist and told him to walk straight ahead off the end of the dock. Everyone laughed, including Steven Spielberg. He decided to keep my ad lib in the scene. We did so many takes that after a while it was difficult to keep laughing. There's another section here by Henry Carrero's son, Stephen Carrero, who was quoted as saying, 
I was just a kid at the time, but remember my father telling me that Richard Dreyfus wasn't too happy about the ad-libbed line where my old man says, yeah, you walk straight ahead, because it sort of made him the butt of the joke. You can imagine where Dreyfus was coming from. He probably had his lines all figured out and just wanted to get the shooting done for the day. Then this local extra starts throwing ad-lib lines out, and that kept them on set a lot longer because the director wants to rearrange the lines. But that was my father. He was just a real ham all his life. People couldn't wait for him to get up and speak at town hall meetings because he was so entertaining to listen to. He wasn't shy at all and wasn't afraid to get up in front of the movie camera and just let the jokes fly. So that's Stephen Carrero talking about his father, Henry Carrero, who was just an extra that Spielberg pulls out, makes him the part of Felix, and he threw that famous line out right now that you walk straight ahead. And that obviously frustrated Richard Dreyfus because um, maybe Richard Dreyfus understandably didn't want Hooper's character to be talked down to. Uh, but that's what happens, okay? But we have to realize what's happening is look at the tone of the talking down, right? They're, they're, it's just snappy, witty comebacks. You walk straight ahead, you know? Oh, yeah, whatever's safe, right? That's what they tell Chief Brody. So it's if you know New England ball busters, they're, they're usually uh, always, they have a snappy comeback and a witty, it's a witty delivery of what these guys are perfect at doing. So we're, we're going to use this right now. We're going to all remember this, this information as we move on to the next scene where we're going to see these guys. So the next time we see them is actually underway out on the water. And we have a quick glimpse from their boat here. You want to swamp us, you crazy son of a bitch? What are you doing? What are these guys going out here? What are you doing back there, man? Tell us what the hell they're doing back there. They're chilling right now. What we have is we have the Jaws Lando Calrissian uh, piloting his boat. I love this guy. This guy, there's something more going around with him. He's smoking a cigarette. He's got the mustache. There's something deeper about him. He's That's his boat they rented. For, so he is an islander. And he obviously knows about the techniques of shark hunting because he talks about chumming the water. He's using technically correct terms about chumming the water. And these guys, Felix with the hat, saying, what the, What are those guys doing back there? And he says, they're chumming the water. And then the other guy, Harry's behind him holding the Narragansett beer can, obviously, that's made famous by Quint later on. They're trying to do the whole fisherman tough guy act, but they have no idea what's going on. And we have the Jaws Lando is telling them what's going on. He says, they're chumming the water. And he says, what for? He goes, they're tracking the shark down. Okay, so you see these three guys in the same vessel. So what we have is we have lines that were delivered that Spielberg and, and, and editor Verna Fields kept that take in there. There were a lot of outtakes done this day of shooting. There were so many different aspects. There were gunfire, bow and arrow. There was so many different side things that Spielberg was using. He was playing with uh, different ideas to try to show how campy and how almost a comedy of errors this uh, flotilla of fishermen would be that uh, the craziness that a $3,000 bounty drums up on the island of Amity. But he chose to keep that scene with that dialogue. He chose the Ben Gardner scene for reasons we will later find out. And then he chose the um, then he chose the uh, scene with the fisherman with Felix 
and Pratt and Harry on their rented boat with the Jaws Lando, which we don't have a name for him yet, but I will find that out. That's there to establish that these guys are right in the mix of it. They still have no idea what's going on. So, but look at their delivery. Very witty, very camp, very almost direct. It's very forceful. Everything's been forceful so far because it's been them interacting with other people on the island. They've already interacted with the chief of police. Now they're interacting with the captain of the boat that they rented. So then we have the autopsy scene, and we're now about 32 minutes and 42 seconds into the movie. It was a shark. We're going to switch to the opening of the tiger shark's mouth. We have a dead tiger shark on the dock, and we have... As the camera is panning back, we have Pratt, the Awat guy. He is on the right with his camouflage jacket. We have Felix with his uh, tan hat He's and the blue jacket. He's on the left. And behind him, you'll see Harry over there behind him uh, as the shark is being hoisted up. Okay, one thing to note also is that the shark is riddled with arrows sticking out of it and it has gunshot uh, bullet holes in it. So it was obviously shot at and there was a lot of stuff that happened to this uh, tiger shark in order to kill it. We're going to do a whole episode on this tiger shark. I don't have enough time to get into that because this is already going to be a long episode, but there is a lot of information on this tiger shark, how it got to the set, but also the, uh, the use of tiger sharks in Jaws. There, the use of tiger sharks in Jaws, there's about four different ways that they are used. And more important than a great white. And that is uh, because the tiger shark has a lot of significance to Quint's backstory. And that's what I zeroed in on. I zeroed in on the use of the tiger shark in much of the book of Quint because the tiger shark is used um, throughout Jaws in a background kind of way. And there's many ways we can talk about that. We're going to get to that in a later episode. But for now, we're just going to talk about this as the tiger shark in the background because we have to focus on these fishermen and actually what are they doing. So they're obviously gloating about how they caught the shark. Paper! Now can we just have the guy... Ben Gardner, get this? No, 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 we caught him. We got it. 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 All right, so now we have, did Ben Gardner get this? No, we caught it. So we have the three fishermen bragging that they caught it. Uh, they're on their high horse. We have now Quint steaming into the scene, uh, lurking in the background with the orca, laughing at the whole situation because he knows that these clowns got lucky. But he also knows that that's not the shark. You can see Quint in his demeanor. He already knows that that's not the shark. Could you just open it up a little bit, please? I want to get a picture of the guy with the fish. Come on, guys. Come on, please. Now, Hooper is measuring the uh, shark's mouth from uh, side to side and uh, the, for the bite radius, obviously, the infamous bite radius term. Um, as Meadows, played by Carl Gottlieb, who is the screenwriter, uh, who was one of the screenwriters on the movie, is trying to organize everybody. Please, I need a picture for the paper. We get the sign, please. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. we watch it. I need a picture. Just like in high school, one row kneeling, one row Young fella, could you step out of the picture? I'll take the race with you. Okay, and now he says, young fella, can you step out of the picture? And Pratt leans over and says, and take your rig with you. And I, I believe that's what, he, and remember, we can't go by the subtitles on the DVD and Blu-ray. The subtitles are not entirely correct throughout the movie Jaws. You don't want to go by those because um, there's many mistakes in there. 
Um, it says that the, the subtitle line is take your rake with you, but he doesn't have a rake. He does have a rig, though, which is his uh, bag. And that's what I believe he was telling him to do. Take your rig with you. Could you step out of picture? I'll take your rake with you. And so Hooper's looking around. He picks up his leather, his, his, uh, his fancy leather bag, and he moves on. We're ready. Thank you. We're ready. Can you get that, please? How's that? All right, now there's a quick line right there. After the picture is taken, you can hear um, you can hear Felix and Pratt have a little quick exchange there. Let's listen to that again. How's that? He says, "What about our money?" He says, "We can go outside the town and let's go get our bucks." So that's as best as I can make out is we can go outside the town and let's go get the bucks. So the guy, so Felix says, what about our money? And they're already, so what we know is these fishermen are already making plans on going to get the money after the picture is taken uh, of all the fishermen and the trophy tiger shark. Now listen how the men's tone change in this scene, especially the line as he's walking up. He says, what kind of shark? What kind of shark? And the other man in the back who we were calling Harry um, he's kind of punching the shark with a pen or a pencil. And he's, he even says, he goes, I think it's a Mako. He doesn't even know how to pronounce Mako. So that's something he must have heard out of the blue. But let's, let's listen to the scene really quick. Of a shark, is it? I don't know. I think it's a Mako. Got a deep throat, Pratt. Yeah, well, but what kind? What kind of shark? Tiger shark. A what? Okay, so he says... I think it's a McCall. Got a deep throat, Pratt. Yeah, but what kind? What kind of shark? Tiger shark. A what? Harry in the back says, I think it's a McCall. Obviously mispronouncing the term Mako. Uh, Felix puts his head right into the shark's mouth and says, it's got a deep throat, Pratt. And then Pratt responds, yeah, but what kind? What kind of shark? And listen to his cadence. He's already lost the tough guy act because now this is just them talking. So these three guys, they might have come from uh, some sort of, they might be union plumbers or union carpenters from, uh, the, from uh, New York City or Long Island or even somewhere in Boston. But they obviously, now these three are together without talking to anybody. They're not engaging with any islanders, so they, they've dropped their tough guy act, and they're just talking amongst themselves, but Hooper hears it from behind. And he said, and so he says, but what kind? What kind of shark? And, and Hooper says, tiger shark. And just really quick, I just want you to know how dialed in, even though many of these lines are ad-libbed, uh, how dialed in Spielberg was to this sequence when you when he cuts to Hooper just for that one line where he says tiger shark with a pen in his mouth, with a pencil in his mouth, you see Quint's orca, Quint, you see Quint and the orca cruise from left to right. So the staging of the scene just for that one line with the orca in the background, that's a completely separate take because Spielberg knew that Quint was already coming from the left side in the harbor from earlier in the sequence. So Spielberg was very dialed in here. So nothing that's happening here is out of chance and nothing, it really is uh, left to interpretation. This is all designed to be this way. There's a reason why he says this line the way he says it. McCall, got a deep throat, Pratt. Yeah, but what kind, what kind of shock? 
tiger shark. A what? So at that point, the tough guy act is dropped because the uh, Pratt, who says a what, in that tone, is actually bewildered that there is actually a term tossed out called tiger shark. He had, they have no idea what shark species are because the guy can't even pronounce Mako. He says Mako. For the first time in, on the island, he is now made to feel almost like a, a child, a bewildered child, because he is hearing something that he doesn't have a snappy comeback to. So that's why I believe people will misinterpret this take as him saying in what the uh, YouTube user or what Chris wrote in, uh, that it's a faux posh voice to try to make Hooper seem feminine or make fun of Hooper. But that's not what's happening here because I know and I have lots of experience with New England ballbusters. And those types of guys would have mimicked Hooper and in that type of voice. So they would have, if he wanted to come back at Hooper, he would have mimicked him or he would have said something with a gesture or a sarcastic gesture or a, or a half smile. But look at all their faces. I have it paused right now. In fact, we're going to use this screenshot as the title card for this episode. They're all bewildered. There's no aggressiveness. There's no sarcastic smiles. So this is as honest a take as you can get from these three characters, from Felix, Pratt, and Harry, that these guys are right now, for that, for that slightest of moments, they are bewildered and they are being educated by Matt Hooper. That's sincere. I believe that's sincere. So the a what line is, is like a child at the zoo when the parent points out what, that, what is actually in front of them. They go, a what? So it's very childlike. It's very innocent-like. But now that tone is going to change because there is an exchange between Matt Hooper and these three fishermen that we are not privy to. Let's continue on. If we can start breathing again, then getting plenty of pictures oh, from the papers. Oh, you is. What is this bite radius what crap? That is a big mouth. Look at all it. Get all the stuff you freaking had in there, man, and find out if it's a man, you know, all right? Come on. Okay, this is all very interesting. So something happened where Matt Hooper had an exchange with them. He He said that... He doesn't believe it's the shark, and he was. He said his reasoning is the bite radius. So automatically, uh, Pratt switches gears. There's no more child bewilderment. Why? Because they were already making plans to go get their three thousand dollar reward, and right now Hooper's base. Hooper is threatening that three thousand dollar reward, and there is nothing that will set these guys off more and switch them back into tough guy act than realizing that it's possible they will not get this reward because they were already making plans, as we saw from that little throwaway line, after the photo's taken and they're all standing up. But let's listen to that again. What is this bite radius crap? That is a big mouth. Look at all the stuff you freaking had in there, man. Find out if it's a man, all right? Come on. So they're aggressive. They're right in Hooper's face. Stuff your freaking head in there, man, and find out if it's a man eater. You have Harry in the back blowing in Hooper's ear. Uh, that they're, they're pushing Hooper out. And what happens is he's pushed away from the shark and he slides into the frame. This is a great staging by director Steven Spielberg is now Hooper's going to slide into the frame saying... Bring it that line It's not the shark. What I am saying is that it may not be the shark. It's just a slight... Oh, and I want you to read some semantics, but I don't want to get beaten up. This is Larry... 
So he's saying, I'm, I'm saying it may not be the shark. It's just a slight difference in understanding. I don't want to get beaten up over it. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Is this. So they basically threatened him as in, don't threat. This is our money. They've already made plans for the money. And now Hooper is threatening that money. So that's where the aggressiveness comes from. It's not that Hooper is uh, more well-educated or where Hooper is. Uh, it, 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 they don't see that as a threat because they've already saw, you've already seen that Chief Brody is not a threat and he is a position of authority. He's the chief of police. They do not see that as a threat. That even proves even more that the a what line was a sincere bewilderment and not them mimicking Matt Hooper because they have no respect for the authority, obviously, but they what they will come out and fire at you with is if, if you try to tell them that, that they're not going to get their reward money. And that's where, the, that's where this changes. So their tone changes. So now the mayor comes into play. And now you can, you can see them uh, hamming it up with the mayor in the background. Go on, our mayor. Uh, Matt's from the Ocean Rapids Institute. Nice to meet you. Terrific, huh, mayor? Martin, there are all kinds of sharks in the waters, you know? Hammerheads, white tips, blues, makos. And the chances that these bozos got the exact oh, shark. Oh, there's no other sharks like Martin, this in these waters. It's 100 to 1. 100 to 1. So what's interesting here, if you watch this sequence right here, is the device that Spielberg uses these three fishermen is to show ignorance in the terms of sharks, uh, that, the, that these three fishermen represent just general society. And then you have Matt Hooper rattling off technical terms, bite radius. He's rattling off uh, all kinds of sharks in the waters, white tips, blues, makos. And, the, and, and so what we're seeing now is we're seeing a, a difference. So he uses these three fishermen as a device to show Matt Hooper's uh, bringing a scientific authority to this, uh, to this island. That's what's so interesting is that these are not throwaway characters. Uh, Spielberg actually uses them to lay down context. Because if Matt Hooper just came in and just started rattling off names of sharks, it would seem one layer. It would seem very superficial. It would be it would be a weakened portrayal of how this movie is delivered to us. But now, as Matt Hooper comes in, pulling Martin away from the fray of people that don't even know how to pronounce Mako, now we're giving something. We're we're, we're we've been given context. So now the subtext is delivered to us that the, that Matt Hooper knows what he's talking about in a very subtle way. And that's what's so special about Jaws. We have to realize the a what line is Matt Hooper educating mainstream America. And that's what's so important about the a what line. It's not demeaning of Matt Hooper. It's literally he broke those guys in one term. He was teaching them that they have no idea what they even caught. So now we are on this. We have him saying, um, it's 100 to 1. It's 100 to 1 about if these chances that these bozos caught the exact same shark. If you watch Felix and Pratt in the background talking to the mayor, the mayor keeps an eye on Brody and Hooper. The mayor kind of snubs Pratt, who's trying to say something to him, and walks over. Watch this. There's a little look that Pratt gives. This is one of those times I wish we almost had video on this broadcast because these are the times that I would like to zero in. So if everybody watches at 35 minutes, the exact 35-minute mark of the movie, look between, just watch Felix and Pratt. But watch Pratt with the guy with the camouflage jacket, the a what guy, 
watch. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. Right there, right before, as he's saying bite radius, Pratt looks over at the mayor. And you can see that he's realizing that, uh-oh, we might not have the right shark. Even though he goes back to palling around, that they know that the bite radius was a valid point. These guys aren't entirely stupid. Hooper convinced them, but they were just got very aggressive to try to get him out of there because they want to collect their money as soon as possible. And right now they see that, oh man, he's talking to the chief of police. Uh-oh, he's talking to the mayor now. So what are they going to do? They're going to try to get their money as soon as possible. Uh, one other thing to note in the background of this sequence, where you have uh, Harry, you have Felix and Pratt. Behind them is the Jaws Lando. That's the guy that they rented the boat from. He's back there, and he plays a much bigger role in the J expanded Jaws universe. Uh, there's some clues. There, there are some clues into him and what role he's going to play later on, or more importantly, what role his son is going to play. And that, uh, I, that, I always love that. I love how there's these little side characters in the background that we can do wonders with, and he's, he is one of them. And I am not going to stand here and see that thing cut open and see that little Kittner boy spill out all over the dock. Okay, now we have Mrs. Kittner walking up into the scene. And remember... Remember that throwaway line that we had? They were already planning to uh, go out out of the town and go get their money. So they were going to go find Mrs. Kittner. Remember, uh, one, of the other, one of the other lines from the council chambers from the town hall scene is the mayor says that's private business between you fishermen and Mrs. Kittner. So the mayor wants nothing to do with the town or any official uh, exchange or any official paperwork showing that there were there was a shark attack or there were sharks uh, bounties on dead sharks because the mayor has a lot to hide. What we have now is we have Mrs. Kittner coming in, and we, she's going she's going to uh, confront Chief Brody here. During the sequence, we do not see. We do not see Felix, Pratt, or Harry yes. in the background. They're off behind us more as Mrs. Kittner interacts or confronts Chief Brody. Before we move on with the, with the Mrs. Kittner part, let's go to, there's a documentary called The Shark is Still Working. It's a Jaws documentary. They actually interviewed Henry Carrero and, and Dick Young. So let's play that segment from this documentary. I'm Henry Carrero, and uh, I was uh, one of the uh, two guys that claimed we caught this tiger shark that you see was right on this spot. And of course, it turned out to be the wrong shark. Right in this area, we had the shark here, hanging by the tail. I, don't, I didn't know who Dick, my partner, was, so I met him that morning. And we hit it off very well. Funny, you know, he's a, char he's a character in his own right. I immediately just clicked with this guy, and, and we started, you know, cracking each other up and making jokes. So what we're hearing, we're hearing the voice of Henry Carrero, who is the man with the hat playing Felix. And we have, uh, and Dick Young, the Awuk guy, is now talking. Henry's a very, very quick fella. When he can ad-libs very well, and we played, played very well off of one another. Gentlemen, the officer asked me to tell you that you're overloading that boat. Oh, 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 oh
across Dreyfus. He says, well, where's a good restaurant around here? Whatever his line was. And, and I turn around and say, well, come straight ahead. Like, Whoa, big lab, right? Yeah, yeah. And he left it in. Then can you tell me if there's a good restaurant or hotel on the island? Uh, you walk straight ahead. <laughs> <laughs> They're all going to die. Spielberg said, just say what comes into your head. So do you see it's it's so we're getting verification from both of the actors that uh, Spielberg was saying, just come say what comes to your head. But the uh, but the important thing is that these guys were kept together and that they did serve a, a, an extra function for Spielberg in his vision on how he was setting up the Jaws context uh, to establish the character of Matt Hooper. Let's continue here. This guy did an article in the local paper on Cape Cod, and he talked to Sherry Rhodes, and he says, boy, you must have an, you have a, an Abbott and Costello going here. She says, no, I just have two Costellos. Got a deep throat, Pratt. Yeah, well, but what kind? What kind of shark? It's a tiger shark. A what? There's one guy that pestles the hell out of me every time he sees me. He walks up behind me and says, a what? That's probably gonna be my famous, most famous thing I've ever said in my life. A what? And there we have it. That was Dick Young talking about the a what line. So there's no hint of I. He was saying it to demean uh, Hooper. He was that. Uh, that's why I believe this. What that was. This line was sincere. That these guys did. That, that these two characters, Felix and Pratt, did, didn't even know. Uh, that there was something called a tiger shark, and and uh, Hooper caught them off guard. Uh, let's finish this scene out here. Mrs. Kittner says, "I wanted you to know that that my boy is dead. I wanted you to know that." And then her father comes and takes her. And what happens? We have, without saying a word, we have Felix, Pratt, I'm and sorry, Harry leave the wrong. frame and follow back no, she's not. towards Mrs. Kittner. You might miss it. Because I was always focused for years. I was always focused on Chief Brody and Mayor Vaughn and Chief Brody's reaction, but also watching Hooper's reaction. But you, uh, you see the three fishermen exit and walk towards in a very callous way. So they're very uncouth that they are going to go after, uh, they're going to go to Mrs. Kittner, a grieving mom, and ask for their reward. Uh, and, and Spielberg, even uh, director Spielberg, even and editor Verna Fields, even continue to stamp that in as uh, Chief Brody continues to walk away. We get a shot from from the back with all the cars parked. We see Mrs. Kittner and her father walking away. But who do we see in a, 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 a out of focus, but walking towards them? We see Pratt and Felix. All right, fellas. Let's cut this ugly son of a bitch down before it stinks up the whole island. Harvey and Carl take it out tomorrow and dump it in the drink. So that right there is the last time we're going to see these three fishermen. But Spielberg does not even, he even uses them to the very last moment to show that, the, that these guys, first of all, they say it without saying anything. So as there was a confrontation with, as they, as there was a confrontation going on with, uh, Mrs. Kittner and Chief Brody. Those three men must have turned to each other and said, the scientist guy is right. The bite radius doesn't match up. They're going to cut this thing open. And if he's right, uh, there's no kid in, and there's no kid in there. We're not going to get our money. So let's, once she leaves, we're going to go 
go to her and get and go ask her for the money. So without, as if they're orchestrated, they don't even have to say anything to each other. She walks away from Chief, and there go the three fishermen right after her. So what are we looking at here? We are looking at these guys. They don't care about a grieving mother's feelings. They don't care about authority of the chief. And they certainly won't care about the authority of a scientist from the oceanographic the Oceanographic Institute. And how do they not care is that they have witty comebacks and they're very aggressive. They go right at you, just like the New England guys that they will that they are. But for that one moment, Hooper bewilders them with the term tiger shark, which plays a greater role throughout Jaws. And we're going to get into that later on. Furthermore, and if we really still want proof, we go to the screenplay. If we go through the screenplay, that these these two guys, Felix and Pratt, actually had a larger role in the movie Jaws if you looked at the screenplay. Now remember, we can't, as I've said in episodes in the past, we have to take what is in the movie as canon to the Jaws universe. But if we are looking for background information or something else to fill some gaps that might be in the movie, or even just some context, we can always go to other sources. And these other sources, uh, we do have access to the screenplay or the the closest accurate screenplay of by Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley. There's evidence that these characters, Felix and Pratt, had a greater role in the movie. If we go to page 31 of the screenplay, now I will put the links to the screenplay on our show notes. So you can always uh, go and look at this screenplay. It's, it's available everywhere. So we have on page 31, after the Hooper sees Ben Gardner, and, he, and Hooper says, hello, Ben Gardner says, hello, back. It says, Gardner turns and yells to his mate, are we ready? The mate nods yes and starts to prepare to get underway. Ben and his mate move from the dock, headed towards the channel and the open sea, leaving Felix and Pratt to scamper around the dock looking for another ride. So these two gentlemen... Uh, were originally planned to be asking Ben Gardner if they could take it, if he, they could hire him to take them out to go hunt for the shark. And Ben Gardner obviously dismisses them, and they were left on the dock. These two are mentioned a lot uh, as the uh, exterior ocean day on page 33 and 34. We have the, it says the owner of Pratt's boat throws it forward and Pratt removes a 45 automatic from the holster of his belt. He tests it firing once in the air. Uh, as they near the scene of the struggle, 11 other boats begin converging and Pratt's yelling. Um, remember Pratt is the, a what guy? Um, that's why he's got the camouflage jacket on. So he had a 45 tucked into his belt supposedly, and he's shooting at the shark. Pratt uses his automatic, another blast point blank with a shotgun. There are occasional water ricochets and the bounty hunters duck from time to time as bullets skip by. Finally, the shark stops thrashing. So there's, there's dialogue there. Everyone can go read that page 33 and 34. There's more, there's more dialogue that was happening out on the water between these guys and the other boats. Now, why do we know that that third guy, why I believe his name is Harry scene 98 on page 38 of the screenplay after after she says my boy is dead i want you to know that it says it writes in the screenplay is written she stops unable to continue her father takes her arm and leads her away pratt harry and the others trail off after her during the rest of the scene the camera tightens in on brody to the exclusion of the others 
and Vaughn says, I'm sorry, Martin. We know that Pratt is the Awuk guy. We knew that Felix is the you walk straight ahead guy. And now we have the term Harry, the name Harry, as one of the guys that trails off after Mrs. Kittner. So that's how we get to those three guys naming named Felix Pratt and Harry. In the larger picture, these three fishermen were used by Spielberg to stamp home Matt Hooper's expertise on the issue of sharks and also how would normal society react to a bounty on a killer shark. So thank you very much for everyone for listening. This has been episode 53 of the Jaws Obsession. A what? Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. Some final announcements here. We have 40 books left. 40 books of Quint are left over at the Crack Bean Coffee Roastery. You can follow the links in the description on how to order one and get yourself a book of Quint. John Tedder still has discount code JAWSOB for all orders at Quint's Shark and Shack over at Etsy.com. You can follow the link to that also in the description of this broadcast. The movie Jaws is copyrighted property of Universal Studios. Any references and sampling from the movie Jaws in the, this episode is intended to fall within Section 107 of the Copyright Act. The copyrighted materials are fairly used for the purposes of criticism, comment, reporting, teaching, and research. The materials used here are protected by the fair use guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act. All rights reserved to the copyright owners. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and this goes to show that these episodes are very fluid. If you write me at jawsob2025 at gmail.com, if you have any information on this episode or future episodes, I would love to talk to you about it, and maybe we can uh, get a, ideas for future episodes. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you, Chris in North Carolina, for writing in with that question about the a what line. Look forward to hearing from more people. Everybody, if you could uh, give us like, comment, subscribe to this episode and the broadcast that you're listening to, we'd very much appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Until next week, farewell and adieu, and show me the way to go home. <laughs>